Welcome to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you have. And usually I don't comment on temporary short-term declines in stock markets here or overseas. But unfortunately, we have had a really ugly decline after we had a decline, then a great recovery. And now things are declining again. And people uh, feel like uh, they don't know which way's up. And it's creating a lot of anxiety in people who are investors or have money in Roth IRAs, 401ks, whatever. And I want to tell you what's going on right now. Why is it that the market here in the United States and other countries is now declining? And it's because in a number of states around the United States and in a number of other countries, the incidence of coronavirus is rising. And we are not going to shut down states again. It's not going to happen. There may be a city that imposes restrictions somewhere in the United States. There may be a state or two or three that, if there's another large outbreak, will do things to put people back into quarantine or shut down or isolation or whatever they want to call it. But we can't shut down the U.S. economy again because the economic problems that will result from that are tremendous. So what the marketplace, though, is seeing and why stocks are declining is there's a fear that people will not engage in economic activities and go out and about even though places are opened up and are going to stay opened up. And so that's where the concern is. And that's why stock markets are declining again. And it is the great unknown. And as I've said to you in the past, until we have treatments that are looked at and recognized as effective for coronavirus, or until uh, as soon as next year when we have a vaccine that is found to be effective widely, we're going to be in a push and pull with the number of people who have coronavirus. And it's something that we are weary of. We're all tired of hearing about it. We want it to be over. But a disease takes its own course and follows its own time schedule. We as humans can only intervene by uh, scientists and people in medicine coming up with the more effective treatments or, as I mentioned earlier, a vaccine. But we as humans who are not scientists, not doctors, can go about daily life and still help. You know, there are things that people roll their eyes at, like the whole mask wearing thing, particularly guys. I saw something recently that guys um, look at it as just the opposite of macho, that you're a wimp if you don't wear a mask. And I don't know how a mask became a symbol of masculinity or not having masculinity, but the reality is we're able to have more commerce, more economic activity, activity the more people are willing to keep decent distance from others and wear masks when they're out and about. And that's a personal choice. You know, there are people who just aren't going to do it, but know that the consequence 
is it's harder for the economy to rebuild strength. And that is what you're seeing reflected in stock markets because the investment community is worried that the economy is not going to recover as quickly as people would like. And airline stocks are getting pounded because people, if they're afraid of uh, an outbreak of coronavirus, one of the last things they're going to do is go get in an airplane or do other activities where they're put into contact with others. So you have two-thirds of Americans, uh, no matter how you ask the question, who are worried about going out and doing activities that used to be so common for us. And we've got to do the things we need to do in order for people to have more confidence. And that involves disease management, and it involves you and me doing things that will help reduce the number of incidences of coronavirus, the number of people who get sick, hospitalized, and sadly die. So it's up to you and me to do our part if you want to. And it's time for your questions, and producers Kim and Joel are alternating asking your questions. And Kim, who do you have a question from? Up first today is Daniel from Connecticut. He says, I just got a debit card from the U.S. Treasury Department. It seems to have money on it. And then the very next day, I got a letter from the U.S. Treasury Department on White House letterhead saying that I would be receiving $2,132.42 on a debit card. Am I being scammed? I don't know what to do with this. Okay, wait a minute. The amount you said, $2,132.45. It's a weird amount, right? No kidding, because the amounts are $1,200. I guess if someone elected to have taxes taken out, no. Oh. Or would they get a choice on no, that? No, because it's tax-free. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, I think the letter could be counterfeit, but the funny thing is what most people thought was counterfeit is the real thing, and that is the Visa debit card is what your money is actually on. And I'm clueless, and maybe someone hearing us will explain how it could be such a weird amount Joel yeah, has so, an idea. Well, it could be, too, Clark, that, that they're not eligible for the full amount, right? There, there's a, a step-down phase, depending uh, on how much you earn. Uh, so right, it could be right, that they're right. eligible for part of it. Brilliant, Joel. See, that's why we all work together as a team, right? That's right. So the debit card is what the Treasury's experimenting with to pay the stimulus funds to people who did not have a known direct deposit relationship with the U.S. Treasury. And they, originally they were going to send checks that were going to take all the way into the fall to get in everybody's hands. So this is an experiment at this point with the Visa debit cards. The Visa debit card is almost certainly real with your money. Joel? Clark Carla in Iowa says, I recently finalized my divorce and I've got a chunk of money that I'd like to earn interest on. You've advised people to go to bankrate.com and find a high interest online bank. But this scares me. Is it okay to put my money in these accounts? They say they're FDIC insured, but there's comfort in knowing that my money is just down the street at a physical bank near me. I understand that concern. No institution would be listed on the bankrate list that was not properly FDIC insured. And it is the same risk with 
a bank down the street, as with one of the online banks, which is zero risk, up to a quarter million dollars. The problem if you go to the bank down the street is they're going to pay you essentially zero percent on your money, and you need to make this money work for you. So I would encourage you to overcome your concern, your fear with this, and put the money in an online bank where you can earn so much more. You then link that account to the bank you do business with down the street, and you can move money back and forth. Typically, in two days, is you need to use some of the savings, or if you want to add to it, it's very easy to move that money back and forth for free. Kim? Sal in Florida says, is there a credit card that in addition to the being a regular credit card can also offer a one-time use type credit card number? Yes, that has become common again. It uh, was something that uh, producer Kim was one of the pioneers of doing this <laughs> originally. Was that like six years ago? It's Yeah, it's been a few years. And nobody was really interested in it then. And it went the way of the dodo bird. Well, now it's fully back because it was an idea just ahead of its time. And uh, you can talk to most any issuer and ask them if they have one-time use numbers that come with their card product for you to use for online shopping. And now a number of them with tap to pay, where you know the card will have the three half circles, their cards will do a one-time use number using tap to pay as well so this is a thing that's great for you to know about and there's a wonderful briefing about one-time use numbers at privacy.com if you want to go read that and see how it works and a way that you're able to have one-time use numbers when you need so that you don't have to worry so much that somebody is going to intercept that number and have a blast as if they're you. Joel? Clark Darlene in Oregon says, I'm wanting to cut the cord, Clark, get rid of my cable. My question is, I have three televisions. Do I need to buy a Roku for each TV? You do, and it will brutally set back your wallet. Depending on which Roku you buy, three of them would cost you 60 bucks to 100 bucks to 300 bucks, depending on which Roku model you buy. But more typically for three TVs, you're going to spend around 100 bucks. The most basic Roku that you could buy ultra cheap is not going to be great if you have wonderful big screen, high def televisions. If you have older TVs that aren't so fancy, you could buy a very inexpensive, I think they're referred to as Roku Expresses, that are very, very cheap. And then buy for a nice high-def TV or uh, ultra-high-def TV that you have. You could buy one of the ultra-high-def Rokus that, again, start at 30-something dollars. And it's great when you have Roku across your TVs because you set them up. They're on one account. You um, are able to have whatever programming you want available through them and the neat thing with Roku and why it's so dominant is Roku has now there's amazing hundreds of channels of free content where you pay 
no monthly fee and they're advertiser supported you have to go back to watching ads again but you get massive amounts of streaming for free and that's in addition to the channels you can pay a monthly fee for kim jim in pennsylvania asks are business insurance companies doing anything with loss of income for the many businesses that had to be shut down I've been told nothing yet by mine, but I heard that legislation might be passed to make some sort of a fund. Just so you know, I did get a limited PPP loan, but I lost about $125,000 of sales in the past three months. I am so sorry. And this problem with how business interruption insurance is not paying is one that's making the lawyers rich for both the lawyers representing the insurance companies and the lawyers representing business owners because insurers have been hiding behind clauses buried deep in their business interruption insurance policies where many insurers are saying hey this isn't covered you know we had this thing that pandemics weren't covered and so uh this is this is a real donny brook of a fight now there's been talk on capitol hill only talk at this point about the fourth stimulus law having some form of business interruption coverage in it but it's just impossible to know if that's going to happen and the problem always with insurance is the exclusions that are buried in multiple pages of a document and i have always been a fan of insurers having to have clear disclosures on policies that are standardized so you can compare insurer to insurer but the industry hates that and has effectively lobbied generally against it because it's worked so well like for medicaid medicare supplement policies that insurers hate how easy it is for people to comparison shop everick is with us on the clark howard show hi how you doing hi clark how are you Great, thank you. You want to save money for your kid's college? Yes, yes. I want to. I want to start early. He's only five, but I want to get started early. So uh, that was my my question. What What's the best route to go as far as saving money for my son's education? Absolutely, something known as a five twenty nine plan, mm-hmm. which is a tax free college savings plan, mm-hmm. and they're sponsored generally by states. And so I recommend that you do a 529 because whatever money you put in grows tax-free all through the years, and then everything it earns, everything in it is tax-free when your son goes to college. And what state do you live in? I live in Georgia. All right, so Georgia has um, is in my second highest category of plans for college savings Mm -hmm. so i divide them out dean's list honor roll and teacher's pet and so it's a good low-cost plan in georgia and -hmm. i would just put money in what's known as the age-based portfolio which is where with him being five every two years as he gets closer and closer to college age the investments Mm -hmm. in there get a little more conservative so that you don't have to worry so much about what would happen with the stock market just before he would enter college. And mm-hmm. I've got a guide. If you go look at Clark.com and then search 529, 
You'll mm-hmm. scroll down a little. You'll see my plan guide. Click on it, and it'll take you through how to open the account and then the process for funding it, what the minimum is, and all the rules you got to follow to do the 529. The only way that doesn't work out is if mm-hmm. your son later decides not to go to college. Mm-hmm. Instead of everything being tax-free, suddenly not only are the gains taxable, but you pay mm-hmm. a 10% penalty too. Okay. So as, okay. as long as college is the real deal, nothing comes close to the deal that a 529 plan offers. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. I want to give you some good news that's a result of the bad news I shared with you earlier, that because of a sudden increase in outbreaks of coronavirus in various states around the United States and overseas, the stock market is taking a big plunge and economies around the world are likely headed for a slower recovery than they would have before. Well, the one positive is mortgage rates are hitting new lows today. I mean, lows from forever. So the average 30-year fixed is now reporting at 2.97%. And for people with really top-tier credit, the mortgage rates are now at 2.75. 15-year loans averaging 2.55%. So I know this is crazy, and I can't imagine I would ever be saying this, but someone with a current mortgage rate of 3.75% or above with a good credit score should actually be looking at whether it makes sense to refi yet again. And remember, the smart money, if you can afford the monthly payment, is you go into that 15-year loan rather than into a new 30-year loan. To be able to lock in money for 15 years at about 2.5% is absolutely amazing. Now, there's something else that is great, but the rates are not as amazing as that. Amazon has its marketplace, and most merchandise people buy on Amazon is not from Amazon. It's from independent sellers, and Amazon knows so much about those sellers that Amazon is entering into a joint venture with Goldman Sachs, which has their Marcus organization with savings rates and loans and all that, where people who are sellers on Amazon's marketplace are going to have loan offers made to them. And the loan offers, according to CNBC, are going to be a sliding scale interest rate that's going to be a fixed rate. And those that the deep data that Amazon has on its sellers look rock solid, are going to be offered access to loans at 6.99%. Now, if your credit is really not so great by their analysis, then the loan rates could be 21%, but in the range between uh, basically 7 and 21%. Now, this is the upside for Amazon Marketplace sellers 
to the downside of how much Amazon knows about you. So it means that for Goldman Sachs, being able to make these lines available is something that would be much more difficult for them to do as one of the world's largest financial houses without access to this partnership with Amazon. The credit lines are reportedly going to be up to $1 million. So it allows small businesses that have this big e-commerce presence on Amazon to have very inexpensive and ready access to working capital as it's needed for the business. And it'll work kind of like um, a, a credit card where you will be able to charge it up, pay it down, charge it up, pay it down, that sort of thing. So uh, we'll see. You're not automatically going to be able to go apply for this. You will be invited by Amazon if you meet the uh, secret criteria they have on how financially worthy you are as to whether or not you will be able to get the loan. Now, the other thing that I want to share with you has been really, really interesting to us is that we were getting dozens of questions a day at clark.com slash ask for months about the payroll protection program. And Kim, how many weeks has it been since we've had even a single question it's posted been, about it? Yeah, two solid weeks without a single question, but it started trailing off about three weeks ago. So think about that. The payroll protection program went from something that small businesses were clamoring to get. The first supply of money went in days. Now the second supply is sitting there with, I think, about $170 billion still unclaimed. And it's because the Treasury Department and the SBA have botched this thing, changing the rules for the loans uh, over and over and over again and writing regulations that are so tortured that they intimidate any small business owner. And I will tell you that now that the loan period is so much longer and the rules for what generates loan forgiveness so much more favorable than they were before, that I would say that if you turned away from it but you need capital to keep your doors open, you should look at seeing if you can get approved for one you could always say when the final regulations, or what hopefully will be final regulations, are issued in the next couple of weeks, that it's just too hot to handle and not worth it. You can just turn the loan money back in, no harm, no foul, and at least know that you have access to the money. I know a lot of business owners, even with the ability to use the money for expenses that can be forgiven over pretty much the rest of the year, are still like, hey this is too scary to me but if you feel that the conditions exist for your business to be successful going forward and survive if you had that money but not survive if you didn't have the PPP money then I would encourage you to make take another look at it and see if it would make sense for you to go ahead and put in a loan application now it's time for your questions and producers Kim and Joel are alternating. Who's up? 
Clark, I am, and Rom in Georgia says, I'm a big fan of your show, Clark, longtime listener, first time asker. Nowadays, there are a lot of companies offering $0 trades. I'm currently using Robinhood, but I'm thinking about transferring to another brokerage firm. Are there any precautions that I need to take before initiating the transfer, and is that going to affect uh, my stocks? No, you can, uh, you can transfer your holdings, and it's generally a pretty streamlined process to transfer your holdings from one brokerage to another. The industry has a procedure to do that. And, uh, you know, Robinhood made enormous changes happen in the stock trading business. And I remember when Robinhood launched and said they were going to make trading free, there were so many old hands on Wall Street and with various uh, brokerages, even discount brokerages, said, that'll never work. And now all the discounters have pretty much copied it and gone to $0 trades just like Robinhood. The advantage that the uh, traditional discount brokers have over Robinhood is they have such wide offerings that Robinhood cannot match yet at this point. So all you do is decide which discount broker you want to go to, and they will... Once you decide, they will do the paperwork for you to sign it, and they will handle the transfer of your account and its holdings over to the broker you move to. The only exception to that, and this does not apply in a Robinhood case, is that if you were at a broker that had what are known as proprietary funds that are their own only, then those have to be sold to move across or you have to leave them behind and there's no equivalent at a place like Robinhood. Kim? Nathan in California says, Hi Clark, I am fortunate enough to be starting a new full-time position during these very uncertain times. I'm moving from LA to Western Massachusetts and I had just recently bought a new to me sedan and a sedan will not work in the winter's salt damage snow issues of Massachusetts. So my question is, should I trade in my sedan while I'm still here in LA or wait until I get to Massachusetts? Ideally, I'd like to be able to use the sedan for the drive to Massachusetts because it gets such good gas mileage, but I don't know where I'm going to get the better deal. So what you can do is if you have a CarMax near you, go to CarMax where they will appraise the vehicle and make you an offer on it and do the same with Carvana. Do it just before you're planning to go across the country because the price you're offered is not subject to regional variation. If they make an offer to you, you're able to make arrangements with, uh, within reason with them to turn it in elsewhere. And you can make it across the country with, if you push yourself and be able to turn that vehicle in during that seven-day price lock that you're offered. And the other advantage, even if you don't use it in that tight way I'm talking about, is if you go to Carvana and you just do that online at Carvana.com or Vroom, their competitor, Vroom.com, V-R-O-O-M.com, and CarMax is they don't care if you're buying something else from them. They just want inventory and they'll make offers to you for your vehicle and you'll know um, what kind of money in general terms you're going to be able to get for that vehicle. 
And as far as regional differences and prices, there are some regional differences, but not enough unless you talk about a specialty vehicle like a convertible that you'd really have to worry so much about whether you got rid of it on the West Coast or the East Coast. Joel? Clark Kathleen in New York says, we paid off our house about 10 years ago. We did it in 15 years. We'd like to make home improvements, though, on the home, which will cost somewhere between $100,000 and $150,000. Rather than take money from our investments, we thought we would consider a home equity loan or line of credit. We are 56. We've got two kids in college. Which one of these should we consider, and where are we going to get the best rate? So normally, I would, you'd be, uh, you know, it would be music to my ears what you're saying. But in this case, because of what I said just moments ago, I want you to do a cash out refi to do these home improvements in a 15-year mortgage. I mean, they're quoting for people with good credit, 2.5% approximately average rate. And that is so low. That's going to be much lower than you can get on a floating rate home equity line, even from the beginning, and much, much lower than you're going to be able to get in a home equity loan. Since there's no existing first mortgage in place, you are able to do a cash out refi. Now, you should know that some lenders will charge you maybe an extra quarter point for a cash out refi versus a straight refi because there's an enhanced risk typically with a cash out refi but not as often if you do a 15-year loan versus a 30. You also could go to a credit union, and if you can afford to pay back that 100 to 150 in a 10-year window, credit unions specialize in 10-year mortgages, which would give you the ability for rates maybe even lower than what I'm talking about on a 15-year. You'd be on a straight-line cycle to go debt-free again, and you can always pay extra if your goal is to be completely mortgage debt free as well. Kim? Rich in Vermont says, I recently got the letter from my big bank credit card company telling me that they were decreasing my limit by 50%. You warned us about this. So I thought to myself, what would Clark do? So I called them and after a long conversation, they agreed to reinstate my original limit. They just said that I need to use the card more. I talked to several different people and supervisors and no one could tell me exactly what that meant. No percentage or dollar amount. So I was wondering, Clark, what is your recommendation? How much should I be using this card to keep the limit as I want it? So I don't know that it matters as much how many dollars you're charging on it as number of transactions. So if you came up with something you routinely do, whatever it is. So for me, it would be um, eating my terrible for me fast food. And I would just use that card every time I went because, you know, when I spend 3 to $5 on my fast food meal, that would create a transaction. It would show activity on the account. And what they're looking for more than the amount of dollars you charge on a card is that you have meaningful activity. So, uh, you know, I can't read the mind of every banker and every algorithm they use, but most often it's not the dollars you're charging. It's actually the number of activities you have. Kim, you had a suggestion you wanted to add to that. 
Yeah, totally. Why not put a subscription on the card, like one of your uh, TV streaming services or something? That's a great idea because that creates the routinized activity where uh, you've got those charges that are very small occurring automatically every month on the card. And that's a great suggestion also. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Steven's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Steven. Hey, how you doing? Great. Thank you, Steven. So you have a question that's a tough one for a small business owner. It is. I know you talk a lot about uh, personal online accounts, and I kind of wanted to get your take on what you think and what would be a, the best option for a small business for an online checking account or something that makes money for in a business. Sense. Okay, that's a great question, and it's always been tough for small businesses because small businesses get really rooked on any banking with traditional banks. Traditional banks so take advantage of you. And you need a local bank if you're if you have borrowing needs for your business. Do you have borrowing needs or are you just looking to manage the money you have in the business? I don't. I, I do everything in cash. Okay, that's great. So the one that's had just great buzz for business banking is Axos. I don't know if you've heard of them or seen them online. A-X-O-S, Axos Bank. And they've had, of the banks out there that are online, they're the ones that have had the most interest in the part of small businesses. Now, the other possibility is credit unions are allowed to do a certain amount of their business with small businesses. Credit unions are principally there to be owned by consumers, but they can also do a certain amount of business with small businesses. And that's because banks do such a rotten, terrible job serving small local businesses that credit unions are allowed to do a certain amount a business with small businesses. So it would certainly be a valid thing for you to check with local credit unions and see if they do offer or what deals they offer to small businesses like yours. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.